sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. everybody and welcome to thy word amen let's begin with prayer we love you lord and we thank you for your word we thank you for all who have come to learn from you and i pray a blessing upon them for coming god bless them give them peace turn your face upon them be gracious to them lord i pray in the name of jesus and put your word in our hearts god that we might know more of you because you are the word and the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory even as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We love you, Jesus. And we're here for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We are now in the book of Exodus. I think I'm going to put this aside. We are in the book of Exodus. We have gone through a long trek through the book of Genesis and everyone who has gone through that uh, you really should give yourself a hand clap for it I said uh, last week that uh, if you have gone through Genesis uh, uh, part 1 through part 21 you know more about the book of Genesis than well over 90% of the nation um, and that's not an exaggeration um, and it's not really necessarily because of my teaching. A lot of it is that because people have about three or four Bibles in their home and they never read them. But you know a little bit more, well, a lot more about the book of Genesis. And on that subject, it, I am going to give credit for this. It's the only right thing to do. I have debated about whether or not I want to have to actually put out a test, but I think what we should do is just... Uh, if you would come to my wife and let her know that you have either attended or watched online uh, all of the parts of Genesis, we'll give you credit for that. It's kind of going to be an honor system. Uh, I believe that you have watched it or will watch it. Uh, and then when we get through with the Torah, I think I'll give a certificate for the Torah and then the same thing with uh, the different sections of the Old Testament and then finally a certificate for the Old Testament and then uh, for the New Testament and that way you'll get a nice uh, diploma if you will from uh, from thy word through the Bible series which might not be worth a lot but it'll look good on the wall and you'll be able to tell people look I went all the way from Genesis to the end of Revelation and um, and it, I'll tell you, it's something, it, I, 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 will, I will honor you for it, that's for sure. And we'll bring you up, we'll honor you for it. But I think you, that you deserve it if you put the work in. So we are now in Exodus part one. And uh, the book of Exodus is the second of the five books of Moses called the Torah in Hebrew or in Greek, the P 
Pentateuch from Pentateuchos, which is Greek for five books or scrolls. The word Exodus is a Greek word meaning to go out. In Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament, the book is called Shemot. And Shemot means names. And it's after the first verse. We have to remember that the books were rolled into scrolls, and the way they named the books is they would unroll a little bit of the scroll and they'd choose one of the first words in the manuscript. So they called it by either the first words or the first words of the scroll. In this case, that word is shemot or names. In Hebrew, the first verse reads, Ve'ele shemot b'nei Yisrael haba'im mitzra'imah et Yaakov ish u'veto. And that brings us to Exodus 1.1 in English. Now these are the names, shemot. The names, Shemot. And if you want to know how that's spelled in English, it would be S-H-M-O-T, Shemot. And it means names. Shem is names. Shemot is the plural of names. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob. So we find in this book that the family of Israel who came down into Egypt with only seven people is now a very large multitude. Some estimate the number at more than two million people, men, women, and children. And more than three centuries have passed since Israel went down into Egypt. Now the book of Exodus is the story of the nation of Israel who became the slaves of Egypt. And it's about them going out of Egypt, led by Moses through the power of God. Now the book, like so many books in the Bible, so many stories in the Bible, is also prophetic. Uh, prophecy in, in Hebrew thought is not simply linear, where a prophet stands up and says, this is what the Lord says, and then that thing happens. But prophecy is really more circular by pattern. And the book of Exodus is a book of prophecy in that sense. As you see Israel uh, and what happens to Israel uh, in Egypt, you will see that uh, later on in the scriptures. You'll see that pattern uh, uh, be consistent throughout the entire scripture. So you could say that it's a prophetic book or it's a similitude, a type. And that's a word we've heard before a pattern of redemption and salvation. Remember that Israel went through what they went through for us. That's what the Bible says, that we might learn from them. We, the church, the people of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul says, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon who the ends of the world are come. So, therefore, our ensamples and for our admonition, we learn from what Israel went through. And we remember from our study in Genesis what God said in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 10, where he said, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. So God uses prophets, he uses visions, 
he uses similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. And of course, we saw that with Abraham taking Isaac to Mount Moriah there to sacrifice him. That was Abraham, who was a prophet, being used by God with a similitude, which uh, was a pattern of what would happen with the Son of God on that very spot where he would be crucified. And remember that our focus in thy word is on Jesus. And in this case, he is found all through the book of Exodus. The people of God, Israel, are in bondage, which is a type of sin. And they are in Egypt, and Egypt is a type or similitude of the world, or where we were before we were saved. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is the enemy. He's the adversary. He's Satan, or he's the Antichrist. And we have to keep our eye on that because there's a similitude and a pattern being played out right here in Exodus that we will see later on in the book of Revelation. Uh, Moses is God's appointed deliverer who brings them out of Egypt or the world that God might bring them to a land of promise. And we have been brought out of the world so that God might bring us to a land of promise. In many ways, prophetically, we might view parts of the book of Exodus, as I mentioned, as a pattern of the tribulation found in the book of Revelation where we have the wrath of God on the kingdom of the Antichrist. We have the groaning and cries of Israel growing more and more intense. That will happen before the coming of the Lord. We have the plagues on Egypt growing more terrible on the world. And we see that in the book of Revelation, the plagues of Moses and also the, the fire of Elijah upon the world. We have the two witnesses who will bring these plagues. And of course, the two witnesses that we're going to be talking about here are Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron had signs and wonders. And the two witnesses in Revelation will have signs and wonders. And Moses and Aaron will be rejected. And the, uh, the witnesses in the book of Revelation will be rejected. We have Satan's emissaries in the book of Revelation using what appear to be supernatural powers. And we see here, or we will see here, the magicians of Egypt using what appear to be supernatural powers. And so we have this uh, similitude between what is happening here and what will later happen with Israel, the Antichrist, the end of the world, and finally the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are many such types patterns and similitudes in Exodus. Uh, as we learned in Genesis, a type or pattern is a representation for a particular purpose. And in the scriptures, these are models or types. These are ideas introduced for the specific purpose of teaching us something broader. So if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you can't just start with the book of Revelation. You have to have the whole Bible. The key to understanding that book is to understand all of the Scripture, or at least most of the Scripture of the Old Testament. In fact, if you, you cannot understand the New Testament, you can't understand anything that Jesus did or why he did it. The real reason, the, the main reasons of why he did things without understanding the Old Testament. We're going to learn a lot about that in the book of 
Exodus. So a type of similitude in the book of Exodus is Israel, which represent the people of God. We could say the church. A lot of the times you'll hear people call them the church in the desert. And uh, uh, before, during, and after our deliverance. So we, when we come up on them in the book of Exodus, they're in Egypt, they're in bondage, and we're going to see their deliverance. And Egypt represents the kingdom of the adversary or the world, a place of slavery and bondage. And uh, so the, the world, the age that we're living in today, where as we talked about last week, Satan is the little God, little G God of this world. He's a magistrate of this world. He took authority uh, of this world from Adam, and he is in charge of this world. And uh, just as Pharaoh was in charge of Egypt. Uh, so uh, Pharaoh is, uh, is this uh, creature, this person who is like the adversary, the devil, the ruler of the world, or the Antichrist. Bondage is sin. We were in bondage to sin. We were bound. We were slaves. Some of us were really good-looking, well-dressed slaves. Some of us were slaves that had good jobs and drove nice cars. And others were meth addicts and crackheads and prostitutes. And, but we were all slaves. Doesn't matter what you did. You were a slave to the bondage of sin in Egypt. Uh, Moses is a type of Christ. Passover is Jesus the Lamb of God. We're, gonna, we're going to have fun in, uh, when we get to the Passover. Uh, the crossing of the Red Sea in the sea and the cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night that, uh, that led to the sea. And uh, they crossed through the sea on dry ground. That is the water and the Spirit. So we saw the water and the Spirit in creation all the way back in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God moved up on the face of the water. Now we have uh, something being introduced in the book of Exodus, and that is the blood. The water, the Spirit, and the blood. And we're going to, be, we're going to uh, pay careful attention to that. The manna is a type of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and daily prayer. And we're going to see a rock that is smitten, a rock uh, in the wilderness that followed them. And that rock, the Bible says, is Christ. We're going to see the tabernacle, which is the first structure that is called the house of the Lord. It is a tent where the Ark of the Covenant uh, dwells. And inside the Ark is the, uh, the law that is given to Moses the, on the tablets of stone. And that tabernacle is Christ. And in some ways, it is the believer who is in Christ, who is part of the body of Christ. Uh, Peter said that Moses was a type of Jesus in Acts chapter 3. Acts 3.22 reads, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. So Peter was referencing Deuteronomy 18.15. And that's where Moses said that God would raise up a prophet like unto him. So as we watch this man Moses, we can look in ways where he is an example of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and of course uh, he is and uh, part of what he is is he's a an intercessor he's a mediator there were times where God in his holiness just pretty much wanted to destroy Israel and start all over again and every time Moses would get between them and God and he would become a mediator and turn away the wrath of God which is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us he is still the mediator between God and man we have a we have a lawyer and his name is Jesus amen and that's a beautiful thing to know I want to focus the study of Exodus uh, because I don't want to spend as much time in Exodus as we did in the book of Genesis but I want to focus the study of Exodus by covering the main events and types and I wrote down seven uh, main events that I think we should uh, spend our time on and number one is Moses and his call uh, number two is the wrath of God on the gods of Egypt and it's not the wrath on Egypt it's the wrath on the gods of Egypt or what we call the plagues of Egypt number three is the Passover number four is the crossing through the Red Sea and the cloud five is the giving of the law six is the tabernacle and furniture and the ark of the covenant and finally the wilderness wandering so we're going to spend our time on those I, I will not go verse by verse through all of it but we will go subject to subject but I am going to start not exactly verse by verse but we're going to cover most of it here uh, in Exodus chapter 1 and uh, two, because it's basically all story. So let's begin with Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1, which reads, now these are the names, or Shemot, which is where we get the name of the book, of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already, and Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation, and the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. So we have once again a list of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel who are now houses of Israel and will will become tribes of Israel and you will recall from our study in Genesis that Egypt owed much of its greatness to Joseph who God used to save many from famine the nations of the earth suffering from a famine had purchased grain from Joseph and they exchanged their wealth for grain and uh, giving the money to Joseph in exchange for food and be, by this Egypt became extremely wealthy and extremely powerful but Joseph, Joseph and his brothers died and now we are at a point greater than 300 years after uh, Jacob went down in to Egypt verse 8 now there arose up a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph now this in the New Testament, uh, we'll, we find Stephen actually talking about this, I believe it's Acts chapter 7, and he actually tells this story, and the word that he 
uses for new is heteros, which means one that is uh, uh, new and different. So this, uh, this, uh, some, there's something different about this particular pharaoh. He may not actually have been an Egyptian. There's some conjecture here that he was an Assyrian who got control over Egypt during this time. I do not know, but it is interesting that the word is, uh, there are two words in Greek uh, for new, and the one that Stephen used, one, one just means uh, another, like the next king. This one actually means another and a different type. So this different type, it just may be that God is saying that this is a, a different type of person. He's not a good person, um, but it, it's, it, it's not your regular, usual word to use in the Greek. So, like I said, some people believe that he's an Assyrian, and they go so far as to say that the Antichrist is an Assyrian. And there are some scriptures that seem to point to that. We'll get to that when we get to the study of the Antichrist. So this might be a similitude and a type uh, of the Pharaoh being uh, a type of Antichrist. Anyway, there was a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph, and he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join us unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. Many scholars believe that the, uh, the Pharaoh who will withstand Moses, who Moses will go before, is Ramses II. Uh, and so we see here the building of the city uh, Ramses. This may be Ramses I, Ramses' father. Uh, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. So Pharaoh is immediately introduced as a wicked king. He's intent on genocide. He is willing to have midwives or medical personnel if you will, kill the male infants of Israel as soon as they are born. How wicked is that? Only Egypt would murder innocent children while they're being born. Only a wicked nation would do such a thing. There's nothing more wicked more devilish than the murder of innocent children. Verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women. 
For they are lively and are delivered before the midwives come in unto them. You know, sometimes deception is allowable. Sometimes it's okay to lie. Uh, such as in this case, to save the lives of the innocent from a wicked ruler. And there are many similar accounts in the history of the Holocaust where using deception, people saved the lives of the Jews, especially the Jewish children from Hitler's evil regime. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty, and it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. This is a parallel to the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. So once again, Moses is a type of Christ. Well, what happened? Well, uh, the king of the land wanted to destroy all these male children of the Israelites. And something very similar happens uh, to prevent the birth of the Messiah, who is the true king of Israel. Herod commanded the murder of every boy child in Bethlehem two years and younger. So Satan has tried throughout the ages to thwart the plans of God. He did it by using this Pharaoh, and he did it by using Herod. And we're going to find uh, many such parallels in the book of Exodus. We now come to Exodus chapter 2. And here we have the birth of the Deliverer, the one who is coming. Before his birth, uh, we see them trying to kill off the male children. And the Bible reads in verse 1, And there went a man of the house of Levi. So Moses is a Levite. He is of the house of Levi. We remember that Levi is one of the sons of Jacob. And took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. So we find the names of Moses' parents in the book of Numbers, chapter 26 and verse 59, which reads the name of Amron's wife. So Amron is the father of Moses, uh, that's A-M-R-A-M, -M, and his wife was Jochebed, and that's J-O-C-H-E-B-E-D, Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and Miriam, their Sister. So Moses' father was Amram. His mother was Jochebed. They were of the tribe of Levi. And Aaron, who becomes the first high priest of Israel, is his brother. And Miriam is his sister. Verse 3, And when she could no longer hide him, she took him for an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. We see here the method of salvation for Moses is an ark. And Pharaoh chose the Nile River as the method to exterminate the male Israelite children. They would throw them into the river. And we see Moses placed into a tiny ark that is covered in pitch, just like the ark of Noah was. And God had redeemed Noah from the destruction by water, also using an ark. Here he... Uh, saves Moses. Moses is saved 
by Miriam, placing him into this little ark. Verse 4. And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept. He wept at the right time. And she had compassion on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. It was not hidden to her who this baby was. And we don't know really anything about this woman. But for some reason, she wanted to save this Hebrew child alive. Makes me wonder if we're going to see her in heaven one day for this. For what she did for Moses. And she had compassion on him. And then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter. Now this is beautiful. She comes running up. She says, shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women? That she may nurse the child for thee. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, take this child away and nurse it for me. And I will give thee thy wages. So Moses' own mother is going to be paid to nurse her own child and is now being protected by Pharaoh's own daughter. I'll tell you, you talk about just desserts. It's just a beautiful thing. The irony of this. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, because I drew him out of the water. Now Hebrew... In Hebrew, the Hebrew for Moses is Moshe. Moshe. And it means drawn out. Pharaoh's daughter said, I drew him. In Hebrew, that's Meshitihu. Meshitihu. Out of the water. But she was an Egyptian. So it may be she used a name that had a meaning both in Hebrew and in ancient Egypt. And that word sounds very much like Moshe. And that word means son. So she might have been calling him son. And Moshe means drawn out. It might, she might have known and understood both languages. And he received this name Moshe, which means drawn out, because she drew him out of the water. And here we see an amazing example of God protecting his chosen deliverer. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And I believe that Moses, no doubt, was raised by Jochebed, and taught about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then when he became, uh, when he grew and became the son of Pharaoh's daughter, we know that he was educated in, in the schools and the universities of Egypt. He was uh, highly educated by Egypt, and he had a place of prominence as a prince of Egypt. Um, and we have another parallel here. I remember that God warned Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus in a dream, to take him down into Egypt. Uh, Herod wanted him dead. Herod wanted uh, whoever could have been the Messiah, whoever was born in that area. And it doesn't seem like he stopped with what he did at Bethlehem. So uh, Joseph uh, was warned and took Jesus down into Egypt in order to protect him from the decree of King Herod.
Herod. And now we have Moses here who is protected from the murderous king. And both of this happened in Egypt. Matthew 2 and verse 13 reads, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, out of Egypt have I called my son is a quote from the prophet Hosea. And that's found in Hosea 11 and verse 1, uh, where it says, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and called my son out of Egypt. So we see here that Israel, in God's eyes, is a type of his son. And calling Israel out of Egypt, in God's eyes, uh, is calling his son out of Egypt. So there's something to that. So as we look at Israel, we want to look for a type of Christ actually in the nation of Israel as we go. God lets us know where to look. So Jesus was protected in the nation of Egypt. And we see later on uh, in the book of Exodus that uh, God actually likens the nation of Israel to his firstborn. And in a very dramatic way, as we will see, he punishes Egypt by destroying their firstborn sons. Because Pharaoh would not let Israel, a type of God's firstborn son, to go. That's the reason he gives it. He says, you're going to hold on to my firstborn. I'm going to take your firstborn. Uh, and we come to verse 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren, brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses killed an Egyptian. Think about where his mindset is right now. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is is known. So we find an interesting thing here. Moses knew who he was. He had that call of God burning in him. He understood that he was a Hebrew and the son of slaves. But being the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh, he was royalty. And Moses must have understood that God intended him to deliver Israel. Some of us are born to it. Some of us know that God has given us a particular call, and that call is from birth. You have that desire, you have that inner fire, you have that passion to do the will of God, but what we don't have often is the wisdom to do it. And Moses did not have the wisdom. He had the calling, he had the desire, but he did not know what to do with it. And... Uh, but he felt that he was the one to be the deliverer of Israel. And it is likely that the Israelites were looking 
for a deliverer. God had foretold to Abraham that his descendants would go down into a foreign country for four generations. And so the time for the deliverer was coming. Somebody was going to be born to it. And they knew it. And uh, the Israelites knew how long they had been in Egypt. They knew no doubt what God had told Abraham. And they knew that the time of their deliverance had to be close at hand. So Israel was in effect looking for their deliverer, the one who would bring them out of Egypt. And the church is waiting for the one who will return, who will lift us up out of this world. Israel is still looking for their Messiah, unaware that he already came. And they rejected him, but he will come again. But we see that Moses came unto his own, and they rejected him. The first time Moses came as the deliverer, they rejected him. Moses knew his history. And once again, he obviously felt the call of God in his life. It's interesting because he was a Hebrew, but he was also a prince of Egypt. So he had a choice of what life he would live. Would he live as royalty in the lap of luxury, or would he do the will of God? And Jesus also had a choice to make, if you'll recall, before beginning his ministry, uh, Matthew 4, 8 reads, Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and sheweth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. So Moses was faced with a similar choice. He could have had the kingdom of the world. He had it all. He could have lived in the lap of luxury. He could have enjoyed the pleasures of sin for a season. Hebrews 11 verse 23 talks about this man Moses. And Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. 11.23, by faith Moses when he was born was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of a king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land with the Egyptians, a saying to do were drowned. And now Moses here is considered a murderer. The word is out about him killing the Egyptian. And Pharaoh heard this thing, and he seeks to go after and slay Moses. But Moses flees from the face of Pharaoh and dwells in the land of Midian. Verse 15, and he sat down by a well. Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. 
And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that ye are come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and also drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said unto his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that ye have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. So Gershom means a stranger there. He was a stranger. So Moses, a prince of Egypt who was educated in the Egyptian university, who had a life of luxury, power, and prestige, seemed to be the perfect candidate. He had the perfect background and the perfect position to be the deliverer of Israel out of bondage. Sometimes that's the way we think, isn't it? You want to choose a pastor? I see so many people do that. Well, we want somebody who's got a doctorate of divinity. We want somebody who's been schooled and you know, went through all the schooling and they, they got all of this and that's who we're looking for. We want somebody with that particular background, that particular education, that particular ability. You better let God choose your pastor. I don't know what school Jesus went to and I don't know what school Peter went to. He went to the school of being a fisherman. But Moses had all of these uh, uh, things, these abilities, but God did not want a prince relying on his political connections, his worldly education, his own abilities to deliver his people and lead them out of Egypt. Moses might have had a lot of ideas of how to deliver Israel. He might have met with the nations around Egypt, their enemies, and convinced them to arm the Israelites and led a, led a revolution against Egypt. He could have done that. But then Israel would have trusted in the sword, in their own power, and in their own ability. Moses, as the prince of Egypt, was not the man that God needed. Moses, as the man educated in the university, was not the man that God required. God had chosen Moses, but Moses would have to become the kind of man that God is willing to use. Not a prince, but a shepherd. So Moses finds himself where all of God's greatest men find themselves. In the backside of the desert. There Moses' great political influence was useless. There his education, his worldly education was useless. His name, his position was useless. For 40 years he would be nothing but a shepherd watching a flock that another man owned. Can I tell you that God will send us to the backside of the desert? He will send us to a place in our lives where we never thought we would go. He will use the circumstances, the harshness of the backside of the desert to form us, to shape us into that person that He needs us to be. King David may have been anointed as a teenager by Samuel to be the king of Israel to replace King Saul, but he would need a backside of the desert experience, and he got it. 
being chased by King Saul year after year, afraid for his life. And we see Jesus himself, before he began his ministry, he had a backside of the desert experience, fasting 40 days and being tempted of the devil. Moses thought his own ability was what was needed. I'm going to lead a revolution. I'm going to get the children of Israel behind me. I'm a prince of Egypt. I'm educated. But see, God doesn't care about that. God wants a shepherd, not a prince. Zechariah 4, 6 reads, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And that is how God wants to do everything. He doesn't want to rely on your power. He doesn't want to rely on your authority, your position, your name, your education. He wants you to rely on His Spirit. Exodus 2.23 And it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked up on the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. Now to prepare for next week, I want you to read Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. And let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we want you to help us in this book. Lord, to give us your anointing. It's not by might, it's nor by power, but it's by your spirit, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to elevate us. We ask you, Lord, to use us for your purpose and for your glory. That we might be subject, Lord, to your power. To your spirit, God, not to trust in the arm of flesh that will surely fail us, God, but to trust in you in the name of Jesus Christ. God bless you. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart I